Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, a show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the Academy's Deputy Director and one of the curators of the live events programme we host in central London, bringing together the world's greatest artists, thinkers and scholars for conversation and debate. In this week's episode, Hannah McInnes meets an author whose work has touched millions of lives across the globe, Elizabeth Gilbert. Best known for Eat, Pray, Love, her memoir of her search for pleasure, devotion and balance following a messy divorce. And Big Magic, her guide to living a more fearless and creative life. She joined the How To Academy to reflect on life and love and tell us a little about City of Girls, her new novel, about New York show business and sexual desire. Hi guys. Hi. Hi. Oh. oh, that's brilliant. That was great. Good night. Thank you. <laughs> Hello everyone, thank you very much for coming. I am delighted to see so many of you here. Delighted, but not in the tiniest bit surprised. Where else would you want to be? What else could you be doing, given we've somehow managed to lure here to talk to us tonight? Um, I'm thrilled to welcome you all on behalf of the How To Academy. I've seen some posts under comments on social media that suggest that some of you really have come from far and wide. So well done for getting your hands on a magic ticket and for making such an inspired decision. Uh, We're here to talk about the very small matters of life and love. Um, If they feel like quite big things to grapple with in just about an hour, I don't think we could possibly have a better guide in Elizabeth Gilbert. It's very hard to know how to introduce her. She's so many different things to so many different people. I'm sure a number of you have probably decided over the course of the last few years that she's your best friend um, or closest counsellor without actually probably having told her that yet. Um, But I'm going to let her describe her life, um, how she lives it fully, embracing all the ups and downs. And I know there have been a number of both over the last few years. She'll be able to describe that so much better than I can. Um, Suffice to say, she is obviously one of the most loved and cherished writers of our generation, and I'm going to put us all into the same generation tonight, for argument's sake. Um, She's brought us so many wonderful novels and works of non-fiction over the years. Um, One I have an inkling you might have all heard of, a certain Eat, Pray, Love, that was obviously um, a cult phenomenon. You may already know then that it sold 15 million copies and stayed for four years, which is extraordinary, on the New York Times bestseller list. And it was translated into 46 different languages. And like so much of Elizabeth's writing, I think so many of us really found ourselves amongst those pages. Um, And she's brought us brilliant things since. We've had Big Magic, which is a sort of self... (laughs) Look how much... Look how loved! Yeah! And the acclaimed... We have to not clap after... The acclaimed um, signature of all things. And... The book that we're here, or we're going to be also talking about tonight, is her latest, you may have already read it, wonderful, fun-spirited, joyous, kind of bounding novel, which is City of Girls, and it couldn't be more timely. I think we all really need it. And the quote on the front, which I think encapsulates both uh, the theme of the book, but also I think the Elizabeth Gilbert philosophy of living is... Life is both fleeting and dangerous, and there is no point in denying yourself pleasure or being anything other than what you are. So we say, amen to that this evening. (laughs) 
Anyway, that, that's enough from me. Um, I'm going to be in conversation with Elizabeth for about 50 minutes or so, and then we will have time for questions. There are a lot of you. I'm sure that many of you have questions. Um, please just try and keep them as concise as possible, and then we can get through um, as many as possible. So thank you again very, Thanks, very much, and thank you, Elizabeth, for coming. Thank you. Hi, London. <laughs> oh, my gosh. How, how is London for you as a describer of places? I one like of the it best a lot. Okay, this is, um, I actually was just talking to somebody today about how guilty I feel, and my apologies to anybody in here who will be offended at how much I like London more than Paris. Um, and I, I know, I just do. Sorry, you know, um, I just do. There's so, I always, I, it's a city I could imagine living in, um, and, and I have great friends here, and I just, I love it. Um, I'm sorry, Paris. Why, why, what a dumb way to praise a thing. <laughs> is to say, like, no, I like we're, you we're better than of... something else. Like, why would you need to take some... Why would I take poor, innocent Paris down to praise we're, London? Let me just say I like London a lot. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. We're going um, through a bit of a, you know, tough time at the moment, so compliments are great, greatly yeah, received. Yeah, well, so are we. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we're not going to get onto politics. I, I just want to... I want to ask. I said you were many things to many people. You're obviously a writer, but... It's very hard to imagine you ever really have to introduce yourself. I think probably when you meet people, they know who you are. But are if... there any straight men here tonight who came <laughs> with their wives or girlfriends? We may have to introduce me to them, but otherwise I think uh, everybody knows who I am here. So if, if, if we were going to meet someone who'd been, sort of, say, living off-grid for the last 25 years or, yeah. or in a dark cupboard and you had to introduce yourself and say who you were, what, what, would, how would, what would that be? I would say that I was, a, I, I mean, that's what I do say on the airplane when people say, you know, what do you do? And they don't know who I am. I say I'm a writer. Um, and then they say, have you written anything I've heard of? And then I'll say, I wrote a book called Eat, Pray, Love, and then I'll wait. And there's only two reactions. And it's either, oh, that's nice. Or, what? <laughs> um, yeah, I would say I was a writer. But I think I'm a, I think I'm a storyteller. And I think I'm a seeker. I think those are probably my two biggest jobs. Um, I, that, that's how I spend my time. Although my main job, honestly, like what most of the hours of my day go to, and I'm, I'm not even being facetious, is actually just managing my mental health. Um, truly, because like many of us, um, I wake up in the morning and my first conscious thought is like, oh, fuck, fuck. <laughs> Oh my God, no! You know, like, how? How? You know, every single day for my entire life. And so, so a really huge amount of my day, my weeks, my months, and my years has been given over to trying to figure out how to take that exclamation point of panic that I wake up with and just kind of settle it as, as best I can. So that's my actual job. Um, everything else that I do is just a hobby. <laughs> so... Did you always want to be a writer? Were you born dreaming of being a writer? Not born, but you know, as soon as you could think of it, were you wanting to be a writer? As soon as I could think of it, yeah, yeah, for sure. And my, I mean, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but my, my older sister, Catherine Gilbert Murdoch, who just won the Newbery Medal for young adult literature, by the way, um, who's a great, great, great writer. She and I, we were raised on a small family Christmas tree farm in New England. My parents were so weird and... Um, <laughs> Uh, libertarian, off the grid, as much as you can be off the grid an hour from New York City, but they were in, in a sense. And we didn't have television and we didn't have a radio and we didn't have any neighbors our age and my parents were not of the school that it was their responsibility to keep their children entertained and so we had to keep ourselves entertained and books were very, very cherished. Um, and the, my, my sister pointed out to me 
that she figured out very early on that the only thing that we could ever be doing that my parents would not interrupt us and put us to work doing like farm work was if we were reading. That was the only thing that was respected more than physical labor. And so we both figured out read a lot. It'll mean that you don't have to move the wood pile or milk the goats or do any of that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I think, and then Catherine just created these worlds that we lived in because we didn't, we didn't have input from the outside world. So she would create these incredible universes. She would embroider everything she was reading. This is even, this is when I was pre-literate, but she'd be reading a book about the, some dumb 1930s children's book about cave twins. And she would take that and she would embroider it with a, a children's biography about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then we would live for a week in a story that we were cave twins who had a dinosaur who had polio, you know, or like all these weird things that she would put together. And, um, and that's all we did. That is all we did. And we, we, we wrote plays and we created books. I still have these books that we made when we were kids um, that, that we bound with thread and we wrote the stories and we drew the pictures. Get this, we drew our author photos on the back <laughs> and then wrote quotes from the New York Times. We didn't know what the New York Times was, but we would take books from my parents' shelf and see that something called the New York Times had put a quote on there. So we were like really living into that already from a very early age. So I can't imagine that I ever, ever could have been anything else. And now when you come to write, do you have a set routine? I read that you, you go away somewhere where you can eat and sleep and also you dream your stories. Yeah, I have, um, I'm a very social person. Uh, it's par partially why I think social media has been such a natural pond for me to jump into is because I want to talk to you anyway. Like if we didn't have social media, I would sit next to you on a bus and I would talk to you. I want, I want that. I, I, I'm so desperately hungry for connection always. And so I feel like in some way I don't have the typical um, personality of a writer. I think a lot of people become writers so that they never have to deal with human beings again. Um, but I really, I always say that I have the soul of a very serious literary author, but I have the personality of an aerobics instructor. <laughs> Come on, guys! You know, so I, I, I have to, but I have to put the aerobics instructor away in order to do the writing. And, um, and so my process is normally, like for this book, maybe four years of research of um, just trying to learn everything that I could about, because it's set in New York City in the 1940s. It's about the theater world, it's about showgirls, it's about musicals, it's about World War II in New York. And so I had to just almost learn that world like learning a foreign language. And you want to get really proficient in that language so that when you sit down to write, it just comes out really naturally. So it's all that research. But then when it comes time to write, I have to not be with anybody except a dog. Um, it's the only allowed company. And I just went away off into the country and you know, I go to sleep at eight o'clock at night, wake up at 4.30 in the morning, write, nap, eat something, repeat, 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 repeat and, until it's done. I do it in one, one go as fast as I possibly can because I've learned, and this is a trick, this is weird because we get very fussy when we're writing and we find it's very precious and we want to treat it like it's a Fabergé egg. But my experience with writing, and I'll hand this to anybody who's writing, do it faster, it's better. Um, the faster you write, the better it is. You know how a drunk person can run without falling but they can't walk without falling? <laughs> And they absolutely cannot stand without fall, you know? But it, like, you know how drunk people have to be in motion to not fall down? Same with writing. If you stop or slow down, you will fall and you'll drop, it's incredible. And I actually took a circus class once when I was in college 
because I went to NYU where they give you credit for that. But I took a circus class and I found out it's the same. You can run over a tightrope easier than you can walk on one and it's very hard to stand on one. So momentum is actually what's needed. And so I really like, I, I, it's a mind trick that I do to just see like how fast I can write it. And, and I don't look back and I don't let myself look back. And so it's, one, it's almost, my friend Martha Beck said that watching me write this book was like watching somebody swim the English Channel in one breath. But it's, it's really better that way. It's so weird. But, but it also remember there's four years of preparation to swim the channel, but when you do it, just run, <laughs> you know, go faster. That deliberating over, is it of or should it be, you know, is it this adjective or that will kill you? You'll die in it. You'll be like those dinosaurs in the tar. You just have to move fast, fast, fast. Actually, that's one of the things that I think I highlighted most of all in Big Magic is the idea that perfectionism um, is really something we should try and let go of when we're trying to be creative. Let yeah. go of perfectionism. Is that right? Yeah, except to do that, you have to call it by its true name. And so, because I think that a lot of perfectionists, including myself, we use that word because we pretend it's a fault. It's what you say in a job interview, right? If anything, I'm too much of a perfectionist. <laughs> I care too much, you know. You actually secretly think it's a virtue. And so, the trick is to actually expose it, to pull off its fake mask, and to expose perfectionism by, and call it by its real name, which is fear. Um, that's all it is, it's fear. It's fear that you're not good enough, it's fear that you're not worthy, it's fear that you're gonna be revealed, uncovered, exposed, betrayed, criticized, all of it. And so you're trying to mask that absolute terror by never making a misstep. Um, and I feel like when I call my perfectionism fear, it's easier to actually make it go away because that's not as sexy and it doesn't sound as fancy. I always say that perfectionism is just fear and high heels and a mink coat um, pretending to be fancy like, oh, hello, I'm, you know, or like a, a sort of a mustache and a, you know, but it's a disguise. It's just terror. It's just terror. It's the terror. It's the lie. Perfectionism is the lie that says that there's some kind of a rent that you have to pay to be here on this earth and that you've got to master it to, in order to be allowed to be here. When there isn't one, you already, it's like you're auditioning for a part you already got. Like you get to just be here. You don't have to be perfect to be here or even good. Um, you just don't have to actually do anything. You're allowed to just be. Uh, that fear is the thing that stops us being creative. You think creativity is innate within all of us. It's just a fear that would stop us from expressing it. Yeah, and I also think it's a misunderstanding. I think a lot of what stops people from not being creative is that they think that it doesn't belong to them. How many times have you heard or said, I don't have a creative bone in my body? I wish I did. I wish it was creative. I don't have a creative bone in my body. It's, that is loony. That is absolutely crazy. It's the hallmark of this entire species. There's barely an inch for better or for worse, of this world that has not been altered by human creativity. It's what we do. We take nothing and we turn it into another thing. And then we take that and we turn it into another thing. And everyone does it. It's just, it's, I mean, there's never been a, you know, you can't like dump a pile of Legos in front of a three-year-old and have them be like, yeah, I, I don't have a creative bone in my body, I can't. <laughs> you don't put like crayons in front of a kid and they're like, you know, I'm not the, I'm not the artist. Um, my, you know, they're, they're like, Bleh! you know, like they just, they just do it until somebody tells them that they're not supposed to, right? And it's just a natural, and the best evidence of that is what kids do and what our ancestors did. 
Um, I always think of my grandparents who were Depression-era dairy farmers in northern Minnesota. So these are people who, I mean, they're Scandinavian Lutherans in Minnesota in the Depression. You can't get less frivolous than that. You know, like that is like as, that is like as scraped away from beauty, pleasure, delight, and joy as you can get is to be northern Minnesota dairy farmers in 1931 um, with Lutheran values uh, and, and a Swedish accent. I mean, that is grim. That is really grim. And they didn't believe in pleasure and they didn't, they didn't trust it. And they didn't, they didn't like seek out beauty. They worked and they struggled and you know, they were constantly afraid of losing the farm, which they did lose eventually. And they were constantly trying to figure out how they were gonna survive for the next day. It was a really brutal struggle. And yet, both of my grandparents had things that they made with their hands that were so beautiful. My grandmother made quilts and my definition of creativity and art is the making of something that's so much more beautiful than it needs to be. So my grandmother needed to make quilts because she had eight kids and they were cold and they couldn't afford to buy material and they had to use old scraps. So it makes sense to make a patchwork quilt. It didn't need to look like this quilt looked. It didn't need to. It was excessively, these quilts are excessively beautiful. I have one in my house hanging on a wall because it is so beautiful. And these are people who would have said, artist? Like, what does that word even mean? But they did it instinctively because there's some human desire that makes us want to do that, even in the most strict and harsh and, and beauty-starved, deprived circumstances. There's something in us. It's part of the hallmark of, of our nature. And so if you're saying that you're not creative, I would just encourage you to look at your ancestors and look at the stuff they made, even if they were poor, especially if they were poor and then look at the kids and see what they're making and try to figure out what's broken in you by something you were taught that said that you're not, that's frivolous to do this or you're not supposed to do this or you're not invited to do this or you, you didn't get the right education to do it or you don't have enough money to do it or, or you're not talented enough, whatever those things are, it's just lies, 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 lies. Before we come on to your beautiful creation, just one more slightly um, more general question, which is also in Big Magic, you seem to suggest that this idea that you have to suffer for your art, that it's a sufferance and that it's sort of something that creates anguish that we've thought about through history, that's another myth that you want to dispel. Yeah, my reaction to that is that. <laughs> um, and it always has been, I hate, it's like, it's maybe, it's maybe the cultural myth that I hate the most. I don't know, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of really dumb ones about women too. But I really, really hate that one. This, this romanticized, literally capital R romanticized from 19th century German romantics. Um, this romanticized idea that you are not a serious artist unless it makes you bleed, unless it's painful, unless you give up everything for it. Um, it and there's so many examples of it. It's very male. It's incredibly male, it's incredibly Northern European, it's incredibly Calvinist, it has a lot to do with a kind of death cult that a lot of this culture is based on. It's very life-destroying, which is the exact actual opposite of what creativity is. It's kind of incredible that they did that, that they managed to take something that is so life-affirming, healing, generative, generous, and beautiful, and turn it into a fucking death cult. But that's what like 19th century Germanic men did, you know, with everything. They're like, let's make it into something about death. Um, and, and it's not, it's about life. And I, and I have, 
You know, my relationship with creativity has only ever been one of it feeding me. That's what it does, it feeds us. My grandmother didn't make those beautiful quilts because she had a whole bunch of free time or she was trying to make money or get famous. She did it because she was fed and nourished and transported by it. I can just imagine how exhausted she was. She got up at four o'clock in the morning to start feeding the farmhands who lived on her farm so that they could get up at five o'clock in the morning and work until dark. And then she worked after they worked. And then she made these beautiful things that were so much more beautiful than they needed to be. There's no reason she would have done it other than that it saved her and it helped her and it made her feel something that her life was more than just the list that never ended of her entire responsibilities of trying to survive. Um, that is what creativity is supposed to be. Um, that's a more feminine version of it. It's, it's a more giving and generous and affirmative version of it, but I actually think it's how most human beings created art for most of history. And life-affirming is certainly what City of Girls is. <laughs> and it sort of reminds me of the literary version of Girls Just Want to Have Fun and the, singing that the whole way through. And Somebody said it was the 1930s version of Girls Gone Wild, <laughs> which I thought was very funny also. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's light-hearted and, and there's obviously morals beneath it, certainly. But what, was, what were you trying to do with it? What were you trying to say? What message did you want to get across? Well... Um, there's a story I've wanted to tell for a very long time. I've wanted to write a book about promiscuous women whose lives are not ruined by their sometimes very bad decision-making. Um, I don't know where I got the idea to write that book. <laughs> Such it's just a crazy whim I had one day to write it, but I... I, I <laughs> I wanted to write, I've wanted for years to write a book that's a counter to another myth I hate, which is the, um, the cultural romanticizing, again, death cult romanticizing of the ruined woman, um, which is so ingrained in our, in our cultural narrative and in our stories. And it's a great story. I mean, it's a great opera um, to tell the story of, of a woman who's ruined by desire um, and who makes one bad move falls in love with the wrong person, trusts somebody that she shouldn't trust, gives herself over to passion, and that's it, the whole thing. You know, it's like my synopsis of all of those novels and operas and poems is like, um, nice girl, on the right path, feels desire, goes for it, one orgasm, under the wheels of the train. You know, like, that's it. And the punishment, the wages of pleasure, you know, it's, it's again this, this, this sort of cultural absolute distrust of pleasure, this distrust and fear of pleasure. It's so brutal. And the punishment is so extreme. And, and I think that the reality of women's lives, not just now, but for, for all of history, is that women are capable of actually um, surviving their own consequences and surviving um, their, their a little smattering to the consequences, <laughs> to the consequences. You know, and, and, and truly, though, because honestly, if they're... Show of hands, it was like if, if it wasn't possible for women to survive their terrible, stupid mistakes around sex and love, would anyone in this room still be alive? You know, um, <laughs> we're all still here, you know, we're all still here, we're all still here, and not just here, but maybe more interesting, stronger, more in a weird way powerful for it. And that's the story that I wanted to tell. And I didn't want to also tell a sort of falsely cheerful sex positive story where there's no consequences, no pain. And, and, and that's part of the maturing process of, of my character Vivian is that she has to, she extends her wildness so far out into the world until, to the point where she causes 
pain and, and creates problems that she can't fix. And a lot of the book's about shame and about what you do with that. But ultimately, she's not a ruined woman. She's a seasoned woman who, in her 90s, is looking back at her very interesting sensual life with a lot of affection toward herself, which I think is an incredible accomplishment. If you can be a woman in this culture who has affection for yourself, that's quite remarkable because you're... Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. You're going... There's a lot against you. But you, but you chose to set it in the 1940s. Why did you choose then? At the 1940s New York was a really interesting moment. Well, first of all, I've always wanted to write a love story to New York City as well, because it's, it's, um, it's, New York City is one of the great loves of my life. And, and it's the city that is, I, my name for it is the great mother, because it's, it's the place that always takes me in when I fuck up someplace else. Like I go off and try to be normal in a respectable place and I fail and I come back to New York. It's like, come back. Um, it always, it's just been so generous to me and I love it. And so I wanted to write a book about somebody who has that same feeling of love for New York that I do. And I feel like the 1940s was just such an impossibly glamorous moment. And I wanted to set it in the theater because there's always been a lot of promiscuity in the theater. It's a world that has its own rules and, is, and, and always has. So I thought I could get away with the girls being as wild as they are. But, um, but it's also just a really interesting moment for women's history because it was in New York, um, and, and it might have been the same here, but in New York, the men were all gone. And, and so the women were running the city completely, they, and, and they had work, and they were making a lot of money. A lot of women who never would have had jobs got these jobs in the munitions plants and in the Brooklyn Navy Yard during the war and, and doing all sorts of very interesting things and making bank there was a, and, and saving money and packing it away and buying real estate after the war and creating this whole new kind of woman. And there had been all these rules and mores prior to the war that dissolved during the war because there are rules like if you're a respectable girl, you can't walk around the city in the evening without being on the arm of a gentleman. Well, there weren't any men, you know, so that rule just had to die. Um, you're not allowed to eat in a restaurant if you're a respectable woman alone because people will assume you're a prostitute. Well, prostitute for who? Like, there's no dudes. There's no dudes. I'm going to sit in this fucking restaurant if I want to. And there's a line in the book later in life where Vivian with her circle of female friends, she says one thing that she learned over time is that when women are alone with no men around, they don't have to be this or that, they just can be. And that's kind of what happened in New York is that because there were no men around during the war, all these women could just be. And they became a really interesting generation. And then of course, the men came back and all the rules came back and all the women lost their jobs and then the skirts got really big again and like, you know, it, it was all like tight waists and tits again after that. But there was this period during the war where it was like trousers and flats and nobody did anything with their hair and everybody was working and riding around on bicycles and, and making money. And I'm like, that's cool. That's kind of what my life is like, you know? Um, and there was just this little moment in the middle of the century where it was what a lot of women's lives were like. And, and I, I just thought it would be a really great place to set it. And do you think, I mean, it's the 1940s, it's a long time since then, but obviously when a book comes out, you can't divorce it from the context. And do you feel it's a reaction to a counter to where we are today in the sense that Me Too movement, there are rules again and regulations and a slightly um, more sanitized view of how relationships between men and women should work? I will say a couple things. One is, let me preface it by saying I'm, I'm a... I'm a violent supporter of Me Too. I think it's a long overdue and, and very needed expression of, of female rage. It also 
like all expressions of rage, spews out in a lot of directions that aren't particularly tidy. Um, and that's all right, because it's finding its voice, and it will, and it's fine, and it's good. And it's better than not having it. And, and the, the, the conversation around consent is, is obviously incredibly important. I just, this is not a but, but an and. I don't think this is a counter. It's just me saying, as that's happening, let us also please not forget that, that consent while absolutely vital, is not the only word that exists in the arsenal of female sexual desire history. There's also such a thing as lust and desire and agency and will and hunger and, um, and passion and the idea of a woman standing in her own full desire, looking out into the landscape, seeing something that she wants and being like, I'm going to go get that, which is something that women also do. Um, and there's also such a thing as, as women behaving very badly around sex. Um, that also exists. And, and we can't have full and equal conversations about sex if we're going to pretend that that doesn't happen. It absolutely does happen. Um, there's also such a thing as desire that not only, um, that, that women themselves can't control. Um, there's an incredible book, the best book of the year is coming out in a few weeks um, that is called Three Women by Lisa Tadeo and you'll be hearing a lot about it. It's a nonfiction book by an American journalist who spent almost 10 years following these three women who were having affairs and it's all about how ungovernable female sexual desire can be um, and what women are willing to risk when they're overcome by passion um, and, the, and the crazy things that we do when we're in that state and I think it's also a very important book at this moment. So none of this is to to take away, to combat, to discuss, to argue, to debate. It's just, let's make sure that in this buffet of conversation, we also keep in mind um, that female sexual desire is an ancient, primal, dark, and I don't mean sinful, I mean primal, muscular, ungovernable force, and efforts to sanitize it have always been futile, um, no matter where they're coming from. But that doesn't mean that we can't also be having conversations about justice in the workplace and about you know, the safety of female bodies. Of course. Um, it's not either or, it's both and. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. And there's no water in this cup. The emperor has no clothes. <laughs> it's also very much, isn't it, about female friendship. And again, yeah. something that hasn't been much written about in literature, in history. And we're having a time here, and I think obviously in the US, where books and, and things about female friendship are coming back. We've got Fleabag. I'm sure there's lots of fans of that. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, I've, yeah. Um, and, and Dolly Alderton, everything about love. Female friendship is, is, is back. And something you f seem to really comes across in this book. It's very important to you. Thank you for noticing that because it is, of course, a book with a lot of sex in it. It is about female desire. But my hope is that by the last page of this book, where your heart actually is connecting to this book is in the idea of female friendship, but that's ultimately what this book is about. Um, it's ultimately about a woman who learns how to be a friend to other women. It's really important to me in my life to be that. The foundational relationships of my life are my female friendships, um, some of which now, I mean, I'm turning 50 in two weeks, three weeks, oh. something like that. Um, I'm just gonna pause for a second because I'm just waiting for everybody to be like, no, you couldn't <laughs> laugh. Sorry, should we try that Sorry. again? <laughs> oh, no, I am. I, I know, I know. It's, I'm very youthful. Um, you guys are fucking slow on that. Like, let me just... My friend Cheryl and I were talking about how whenever we tell people our age, we do this thing where we wait. We're like, 
and we wait, and then they never say anything. We're like, no, you're supposed to say you don't look your age. Um, but you but don't I, look anyone. I, I thank you. That's how you do it, everybody. Um, but one of the things I'm doing this year, the thing I'm doing this year to celebrate turning 50, is that I'm I'm taking each one of my beloved, oldest, dearest female friends on a trip that is particular to what she would love to do. Um, so I, went, I took my best friend from fourth grade since I was nine to Mexico in January, and then I went to Hawaii in March with another really old friend of mine and um, a friend of mine from 20 years ago whose birthday it is today who I was just celebrating today. Instagram's coming to meet me here tomorrow, and we're going to go do some traveling together, and in September I'm going with another. And it's all about, like... So much, I think, I think we can get so fixated on our romantic partnerships. Um, and, I, and I think we can become so certain that that is the most important, like all your focus should be on that. And yet, I look at this field of these women who I love and, and you know, like with my friend Jenny, we've been friends for 40 fucking years. 40 years. I will never have a 40-year marriage. I'm too old to even try at this point. Like, I will never have that. Um, I, you know, and, and I'll never have that depth of intimacy with, with, with anybody who knows me that deeply. And so, so much of this book is about celebrating that in addition to the desire for sex and for intimacy. And so, Vivian, there's a lot, isn't there, of you in, in Vivian. I mean, not, not least the line I think you, you said about when you sit in, you f once I got the hang of it, I found that eating alone by the window in a quiet restaurant is one of life's greatest pleasures. She says. Yes. That that's, I think, one of the many, um, obviously, giveaway lines. But also this thing you're talking about, about shame. Um, and I think the line, at some point in a woman's life, she just gets tired of being ashamed all the time. And she, as she looks back on her life, after that, she is free to become whoever she truly is. Do <laughs> do you feel uh, do you feel you've had that moment and when you look back at the author that wrote Eat, Pray, Love yeah. is there shame in that, in that book? Oh my god, that to... book is so shame based I, 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 shame is so, I'm sorry, I interrupted you did you have, no, no, sorry, I no. mean it's about you, you I just <laughs> love talking about shame <laughs> no, no, I was just going to say that that woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love seems ashamed to break with convention. She goes off for a year, but is always coming back. And yeah. you have potentially now decided, screw convention forever. I don't do well in it. You know, I keep trying, um, but I don't thrive. I really don't thrive. So you're still trying now? I don't know. I just like keep thinking I'm supposed to be a thing, and I'm not. I'm just not supposed to be a thing other than what I am. <laughs> um, I'm really not. And, and shame is, is, God, it's a killer. It's just so brutal, it's so, and, it, and it's such a shame-based, scarcity-based culture that we live in anyway, and for women it's especially, it's especially brutal, and God, you're not allowed to make a mistake, and if you do, you know, the only respectable thing to do is to just lacerate yourself for the rest of time about it, and it's so vicious, and, and it's so mean, it's so terribly mean, because um, like this is, you know, every woman that I know, and probably everybody here, male or female, if you're in this room, I would guess that you are somebody who, seriously wishes and wants to and actively wants to practice universal human compassion, that that actually matters to you, that you've heard of that idea and that you, you would love to embody that, that you would love to love the world, that you would love to be in a state of love. And that's probably an active part of your consciousness. And then probably every single one of you holds a razor to your neck all day about what a piece of human garbage you are and how your history's greatest monster. And it's the dichotomy between that, you know, the paradox, of course, is that 
universal human compassion that does not include the self is not universal. There's one big gaping hole in the universal human compassion. You have to fold yourself into that as well or else you're not doing it right. You know, like if you want to do it right, that's how you have to do it. You've got to just be like, I'm just one of us. I'm just one of the people who, who is also suffering in the dilemma of being human and I need compassion. One of the things that's been a big shame buster for me, and I don't know if I can convey this, but let me see if I can try it. But like, so hand me, hand me that glass. Okay, great. That was great. Now hand me your shame. It's imaginary. Do you see the difference? Like, this is a thing. It's here in the material world. It's a phenomenon. It exists. I feel it. I see you. You exist. Give me your hand. Here we are. You're real. You're warm. You're alive. I'm here. I'm warm. This is real. This is happening. You can't give me your shame because it's not a thing. It's not a thing. We fucking invented it. <laughs> Do you understand this? It's, imagine it's literally imaginary. It's literally imaginary. If I were to go into the woods and I were to stare at a boulder in the woods and I was to say to it, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself. I blame you. Blame is another one. Give me your blame. Blame me. What does it do to me unless I decide to agree with the dream, right? that we're having some sort of a dream that we're agreeing upon, that I'm to blame, that you're to be shamed. It's all this dream that we're in. So if I stand before a rock and I say, I blame you, you should be ashamed of yourself. Um, the rock is real, I'm real, my voice is real, it makes it, it's like a vibration in the air, the birds will turn around and they'll be like, what? You know, like, there'll be something that happens sort of on the physical level, the rock it will do nothing to it. <laughs> you know, um, a really, really good thing to do when you're ashamed, and I've done this, I swear this is, whatever, it's How To Academy, I'll give it to you. Sit in front of a tree and ask the tree how you should handle your shame. Ask for advice. How do you think I should get over my shame? Just wait for the answer. And it's like, what are you even talking about? This is this imaginary, it's this dream we've agreed upon. It's this complete human invention. And so when I picture that, you know, I could go to the rock and I could rip the moss off it and that would impact it. And I could hammer on it and that would impact it. But me saying, it's your fault, I blame you, you failed. You failed. Shame on you. Nothing, it's nothing's happening. Literally nothing is happening. So somehow that, that idea kind of woke me to the dream of it a little bit, where I'm like, you know, there's, a, there's an idea of awakening, spiritual awakening, that in order to awaken, you have to wake up from the waking dream, you know? Um, that's the next level. So there's sleep, and then there's this dream that we're in, and then there's an awakening past that, where you're like, oh, so much of this is just imaginary. And shame is, is, is an act of imagination that you are, you can actually just decide to see for what it is, just, just the play that we're in. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you're writing, when you're writing this novel, when you have these messages you want to convey, do you have your reader 
in your sights? Do you know who your reader is? When you're writing on Instagram, dear ones, yeah. who, who, are you, who are you talking to? And when you write, is it for them or for you more or a balance of the both? It's for me. It's for me because I like doing it. It's fun and I enjoy it. And I did it long, long, long before you guys were interested. And thank God you are now. But I would do it even if you weren't. And I'm don't not be because it makes my life really great that you are. But um, primarily it's for me. But then when I sit down to write with every book, I've had a different actual person in mind who I write to. Um, so Eat, Pray, Love was written as a letter entirely to a woman named Darcy Steinke, who just wrote the other best book of the year, which is called Flash Count Diary, that is about menopause, that's getting reviewed everywhere, that's amazing. But she's been a friend of mine for 20 years, and when I left to go traveling for Eat, Pray, Love, she had just gone through her own divorce, her own depression, she was on her own spiritual journey. We were very much in the same kind of headspace. The only difference was that she had a three-year-old. And so there was no possible way she could do what I did. And so I had her in my mind the entire time I was traveling. And part of my impetus when I was traveling, like my real encouragement to go and do and put myself out there and try really hard things was I would just think, Darcy can't do this. Like, Darcy can't do this. You've got to do this. Like, you've got to go introduce yourself to this person. You've got to get on this train and go to this city by yourself because Darcy can't. There's this sense that I do have of, like, not just that, but, like, all my female ancestors all the way back. I always say that, like, my grandmother, who had those eight kids and probably, probably eight miscarriages, who was a farm wife and who struggled and who had children and who struggled and who was at an agriculture and who struggled, her life was precisely and exactly like the lives of every single woman in the history, starting there, going all the way back to Eve. It was just that. It was just that. It was just women having babies, women trying to raise babies, women trying to feed babies, women trying to grow food, women trying to survive, women having babies. It was just that. And then something happened. Birth control came. My mom had two kids and a very different life than her mother. And I have none and I'm like a new species of woman. And, and what I feel sometimes is this incredible energy of all of their spirits just being like, go do it. Like, do, because they didn't get to do anything. And every single time I walk up to my tiny little 600 square foot, one bedroom, tiny little jewel box of an apartment in New York City that I own, that nobody else lives in but me, where every single thing in it is stuff I love. And I turn that lock on the key and I look in that space, I hear all my ancestors being like, fuck yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Holy shit, you got your own house? You have your own bedroom? You have your own bathroom? And you know, like, it's tiny, it's like this big, my apartment, but it's like, I feel that and I felt that, so I wrote every word of Eat, Pray, Love to Darcy. And it made me be able to choose what goes in the book too, and it's always a piece of advice that I give to people who are writing. It says, always make sure that you're writing to somebody, um, somebody, and not, not to a demographic, um, because that's not anyone. You know, so when I ask people who are writing something, who is it for? And they say, oh, it's for women between the ages of 40 and 60 who are on their second marriages and who are, um, you know, worried about environmental collapse. I'm like, 
that's nobody. It's nobody. I can't feel who that is in my heart. So all of my books have been written to, so my last, this one I wrote to um, my dear friend Cheryl, who's a great reader and who is in the theater herself, and I wrote it to delight her. Um, and, and I wrote Signature of All Things for my fourth grade teacher, who was um, the, the first feminist I ever met in my entire life. I walked into class in 1978, and she had short, bright red hair and vivid clothes, and she was young, and she was cool, and she had written on the bulletin board, Mrs., Miss, Ms., and circled Ms., Carpenter, and we were like, what? And, um, and she just sat there with a bunch of nine-year-olds and explained the whole history of these words and why she would be called Ms. And I just remember sitting there and being like, this is going to be a very good year. Like, and it was, she was amazing and she was a great gardener and she loved novels and she read Hemingway to us and she taught us Latin and she just believed that we were infinitely, infinitely educatable. And so I wrote all of the signature of all things directly for her pleasure and her delight. So I think it's a wonderful way to, to create because it also means you're not alone in the room. You get to be with the person you're talking to and that can make you feel less alone in your creativity. Oh, there's so many places with that I want, I want to go, but because I'm going to move on to... We talked about suffering and creativity, and I know you don't think that um, it's a myth that you need to sort of suffer for your art, but at the same time, Eat, Pray, Love was born out of a very difficult time in your life, and I know that this one has come after, or perhaps you can tell us about the context and where it came in a really tough and unimaginably hard time, and yet you were able to produce this really fun, wonderful, sort of, as I said, free-spirited work from a really difficult, dark time. Tell yeah. us about that. Yeah, well, first a word on suffering. Um, uh, it's real. <laughs> it's the first noble truth of Buddhism. Um, it exists and it's universal and um, it knows where you live. This is why I don't love the cult of suffering. The cult of suffering which sort of builds an altar to it and romanticizes it and glorifies it. It's not necessary to do that. When it's your turn to suffer, you'll know because it will come and knock on your door and it always knows where you live. And when it's your turn, you'll know because you'll be suffering. And so you don't need to actually go seek it in order to kind of feel like your life is, is more important. Um, then it is. That's the kind of, so I don't want to deny the existence of suffering. And um, one of the knocks that came on my door for suffering was in 2016 when the most important person in my life, my beloved best friend, who for years I had not even been able to figure out a word for what to call the relationship that we had. Um, best friend was very, just didn't do it. It didn't begin to, to explain what she was. She was, the only thing that I was ever able to call her was my person. Um, so I would say I have a husband and I have a person, and, and Rhea is my person. She's my she's my first phone call in every emergency. She's my first phone call in every celebration. When I'm at the end of my power and I'm terrified and overwhelmed, it's Rhea who I call. Um, you know, she provided all of that. She was my advisor. She was my guide. She was my hero. She was she's Rhea. She was epic. She was extraordinary. And then she was diagnosed with terminal pancreatic and liver cancer in, in 2016. And, and death, death has many uses, one of his, which is death and dying and suffering. It's a, it's, a, it's a very clear light that can shine suddenly. There's a clarity that can happen around dying. And the clarity of that moment um, within a couple weeks of her, of us finding out that this was what was happening, it was like this giant Klieg light spotlight came in and just shone on my life. It was just so evident that, oh, there is a word for what Rhea is. She's the love of my life. 
I just didn't, I hadn't quite pieced it together. Like, that's what it is. That's what this is. This is who I love. And, and seeing that and seeing what I saw in the next moment was a future that was so horrifically un, it just, it was so unacceptable. And the future that I saw was that I knew I would take care of Rhea, I knew I would be the one taking care of her and I knew that I would be with her at the moment of her death and I was. But in this vision that I had, I saw that, I saw her dying and leaving this earth without ever knowing, without ever knowing what she was to me and it was just, my soul was appalled by that vision. And I, I saw myself going to her funeral and people coming up to me and saying, I'm so sorry your friend died. And me being like, yeah, and going home after that. And just nothing would ever work again. I just, like, all I saw after that would just be this, like, post-apocalyptic landscape where, like, nothing would ever work. And that couldn't be allowed to occur. And so it was an instant pivot an instant pivot of a very happy marriage, very loving marriage, and, and just instantly, it just, and it was so clear to everybody involved. Um, it was very fast and it was very bloodless. It was just, it was obvious. It was just obvious that this is what had to happen. So I went to take care of her for the 18 months that she was dying, and prior to that, I had been researching this book, and I was about to start writing it, and then she got sick and I put it away, and I never thought I would go back to it. I just thought, well, who, fucking cares about slutty showgirls in New York City in the 1940s. I only cared about Rhea and, but, but, and so I didn't work on it at all while she was, while she was dying. But w again, it was this, this clarity. And I just, I think I just have such trust these days in like, in that kind of clarity. Um, this clarity that came just a few weeks after she died that I always say, like, instructions from the mothership or from the magnet in the sky, I don't know. It was just the best thing you can do for your life right now is to write exactly that book that you were going to write before she got sick. The most lighthearted, life-affirming, sexy, sensual, like, gay-spirited, you know, a book that goes down like a champagne cocktail. And that is how you're going to move through this grief. And that's what's going to restore you because there had been just such darkness and this is now, we've got to get some light into this room now. And, and it, it was exactly the best thing that I could have done for myself at that moment. Um, it was so, so much of this book is about bodies, about bodies being in, in pleasure and in joy and in sensuality. And I think after having been with a dying body where there was so much pain and so much suffering and pain and suffering that I experienced in that, there was something that was almost like, like a pagan rite of ritual rebirth to write this um, and to not write a book about Rhea. She's not in this book. You know, it's not about her. Someday there will be something that I will create about her, but it's, this isn't it. It needed to be an, an exact opposite where it was, it was about, okay, let's rotate the earth and bring light back now um, because the season of darkness has been so, so, so dark. When you announced that your relationship with Rhea had changed, I think it was on Instagram, and I, I heard you say, I think it was in another interview, that you didn't even think to point out that it was with a woman. It, it didn't matter. Love it didn't it, even occur to me. <laughs> so for to you, love is love. It. It, didn't, it didn't even occur to me. You know what's so funny is that at the end of that post, and the reason that I announced it was 
to make my life easier. And also because I think transparency is easier than, I think transparency is always easier. Um, and, and it's just, I've just found it so much simpler to just constantly be sort of telling the truth about what's going on than it is to be keeping up some sort of a story. And, um, and, and I wanted to be free. I knew I had such a short period of time with her and I wanted to be free, really free to just anywhere that I went in the world to be absolutely with her in any way that we needed to be physically, arms around each other, holding each other, and not be like, we is that Liz Gilbert who's supposed to be married to Javier Bardem? What is she doing with that? You know, like, um, <laughs> so I just needed to kind of clear that. And I would so much rather tell you, by you I just mean anyone, I would so much rather tell you what's going on than have people wondering or guessing or speculating. Um, and I also just feel like, any, truly, anything I can ever offer about my life that will make your life feel less strange to you, I'm, why wouldn't I? You know, like, why wouldn't I? And so it just seemed like such an obvious thing to do. And I knew that people were really invested in my marriage and in the story of Eat, Pray, Love. I also knew that you guys would be fine. <laughs> I have a lot of faith in you. I knew you'd all be fine. Like, um, <laughs> You may have been invested in my marriage. You could not possibly have been more invested in it than I was. I'm fine. You'll be fine. We're all going to be fine. You know, like, I just knew everybody would be all right. And, and so I didn't want to, like, baby anybody by, like, keeping up some sort of an appearance for people. It's just crazy to do, live your life that way. Um, but, but at the end of that post when I made the announcement, I, I said, you know, I have one request, and it's please don't bombard us with cures. Like, just don't, because or horror stories. Because when, you, when you're with somebody or when you have cancer, all of a sudden everyone has a story that they want to tell you about their either cancer miracle or their cancer nightmare. And, and there's so much to wade through. There's so much, it's so many different possible ways that you can take treatments. And I just didn't, I was like, let, let us do this, let Rhea do this. She's gonna, she's gonna figure out her own path through this. And it, knowing Rhea, it will be very much her own path. And, um, and just be respectful and please don't, you know, don't do that. And somebody way down in the Facebook comments said, when you said, started that sentence, I have one request, please don't. She said, I just assumed you were gonna say, please don't judge me. And I was like, it never occurred to me to say that. It never, judge me for what? It never occurred, it just, why? Um, judge, no, it just seemed so crazy. Um, and the reaction was incredibly warm. Incredibly warm and loving and, and generous and still is, you know, this is an ongoing conversation that I've been having on social media about this entire process of loss and grief. I didn't write very much about it while Ray was dying because I was really out with her, you know, but, but since she's died, there's been a number of things that I've wanted to share and the, and the sense of, the sense of community and the sense of grace that um, I know a lot of you in this room have been part of. It's just, it's been exquisitely beautiful. What, what did she teach you about grieving and dying? Because I think she did teach you a lot. You, you said you wanted to be the Florence Nightingale and you had a way that you imagined it would be. And it was very different to that. Yeah, Rhea was very humbling. Rhea was the most powerful person I've ever met in my entire life. And I was like, I'm going to take care of her like she's a little beautiful, precious, broken bird. And she was like, no, you're not. Um, like, and, and I came in with all sorts of ideas about about how to create like the softest, gentlest, most zen, most enlightened, most peaceful transition 
into light. And, you know, she was basically like Keith Richards. Like, that's what Rhea was like. Like, that's... So, no, that's not actually how it went. And so I had to be very humbled before a lot of things in that. I had to be very humbled in the reality of how brutal it is to be a caregiver. And I thought that I would be really good at it, and I thought that all you have to do to be good at it is to really love the person, and that that's enough. And it's, and, and it's actually not, because it will, it will take you down. And um, when people would say things like, you have to take care of yourself, I was like, no, I don't. Why would I take care of myself? I have to take care of this person who I love. And, and then I was absolutely shredded by it. And I became somebody who had to be taken care of, because I collapsed. You will, you do. Um, I, I was humbled by the reality that there's not a right way to do this. You know, I really thought that there might be just a right way to do that, to do caring, to do loving, to do death. It was so messy. It was so chaotic. It was so brutal. And Rhea was a drug addict. I mean, she wasn't... When I met her, she'd been clean for 19 years, but the minute they put her on morphine, I mean, she was a, she'd been a junkie, like a speedball heroin junkie for years. And those substances do different things to junkies than they do to the rest of us. And so in the middle of this incredible love story, all of a sudden there was this amazing, blooming renaissance of massive drug addiction that happened in the center of it. And I was like, whoa, oh my God, I don't even know how to do this. This is a whole other thing. How do you deal with somebody who's becoming a drug addict while they're dying? What possible threat can you give them to do less drugs? You know, it's like... <laughs> You have no bargaining chip whatsoever, you know? It's, it was insanity. And she just, it was part of Rhea's expression of rage and autonomy and fury was to do that. And, and there was a six month period in the middle of her dying where she just went on this insane bender and it was, it was like this whole other element of brutality. And, and then there was the humility of discovering that there were other people who were better ta taking care of her than I was. And I was so convinced that because I loved her the most that I would be her best caregiver, but her ex-girlfriend and her ex-wife, God bless them, showed up at the end of her life knowing how tough Rhea was to help her and to help me. And there was this massive surrender that I had to do to realize that actually Stacy is better at this than I am. You know, and there are times where Rhea wanted to be with other people besides me because they didn't need as much from her as I needed. They didn't love her as desperately as I loved her. She could just watch a football game and she didn't have to be in this all the time, you know? And, um, and there, was, there were all these things. So none of it went at all like what I had thought. And yet it was truly the most beautiful experience of my life. All of it. There's not a minute of it that I would have changed. It's the most close to the bone, living, truly living in presence and in the chaotic insanity of this world that I've ever experienced was to be with her during that. And the reason that my life after Rhea's death doesn't look like that post-apocalyptic landscape that I had envisioned is because we did that. Because we did that together. We had that journey together. We had that time together. We had that love story. We had that horror story. And we did it fully. And that's why I'm as okay as I am, which is not to say that I'm not grieving. It's just to say that life doesn't feel, it feels very much still in a vibrancy in a, sort of a 3D because of having experienced that degree of love. You are going to, I think, read perhaps this poem that you posted on your Instagram account that really encapsulates how to sort of get through or what grief is for you. Yeah. And then just before the end, before I turn to questions from the audience, could 
perhaps you might read that. Yeah, and thank you for reminding me of this, Hannah. You brought me this backstage, and you know, there's things that we find that are so important, and then we forget. Like, how did I forget about this poem? I posted this poem very recently, and it's a poem I should have memorized, because it's so, so, so important. Um, It's by Ellen Bass, and it's called The Thing Is. The thing is to love life, to love life even when you have no stomach for it, and everything you've held dear crumbles like burnt paper in your hands, your throat filled with the silt of it. When grief sits with you, it's tropical heat, thickening the air, heavy as water, more fit for gills than lungs. When grief weights you like your own flesh, only more of it, an obesity of grief, you think, how can a body withstand this? Then you hold life like a face between your palms, a plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes, and you say, yes, I will take you. I will love you again. Thanks, Helen. You you say you don't regret a single day. It's part of your, as I said at the beginning, philosophy of life, living fully every moment. If people are in the audience thinking they're not doing that, what is your... It it comes throughout all the pages of Eat, Pray, Love. It's throughout this book. What what do you say to people who who say, okay, how do I do that? How do I make sure I live fully, appreciate every moment? I I don't know that I do, really. I mean, I want to, like hit the brakes on that a little bit because like sometimes you have, just have to have a sandwich or something you know like <laughs> and and I, I think there's a line you probably love where I, I mean I am very intense and that has its benefits and it also has its drawbacks and there are times when I wish that I could just have a sandwich um it's you, know, it's, it's you saying I want to live the most vividly decorated life I can I yeah think. I do yeah. but it's also exhausting for everyone who like it's not like necessarily the most enviable position in the world okay. for instance, to be my partner, you know, like stuff. Um, it's like I'm, it's hard. It's a tsunami, you know. Um, I would wish sometimes that it would be a lot calmer. And there's, there's a, there's a, yeah. And Prelove, I said something like, I know an unexamined life is not worth living, but could I someday just have an unexamined lunch, you know, just like a little break? Um, so I don't know that you have to. I just think that I will say this. I will offer that if you feel, okay, I'll give you, I was about to say something else, but I'm going to go this way instead. Um, This is a new learning that I just got from a meditation teacher who I'm working with, and I posted it recently, but if you didn't hear it, it's a good one, and it it helps a lot. So depression, which is a kind of stuckness, depression is the lowest human vibration. It's almost death. It's very close to death. It can lead very, you can slip very easily into death from depression, as we all know and we've seen. So depression is like an almost, it's a vibration that's just almost not even happening. And, and what this teacher taught me is that you can transcend, you can break depression by allowing yourself to feel sadness and fear and dread, right? So a depression is a, is a refusal you're so terrified of feeling those feelings, you can't. So it's just this shutting down, that's all the energy, just, you just kind of go flat. So you can break depression by allowing yourself to feel, feel sadness, fear, and dread. But then you're in sadness, fear, and dread, which are horrible and really uncomfortable, really uncomfortable feelings. You can break sadness, fear, and dread by allowing yourself to feel up the next vibration, which is rage and lust. So if you want to break sadness, fear, and dread, allow yourself to actually experience and feel your rage and your lust. Problem is, 
those are also extremely uncomfortable feelings. <laughs> you know, you're feeling totally taken hostage by them, like it's not comfortable at all. The only vibration that's higher than rage and lust is pride, like ego, pride. And so allowing yourself to feel how proud you are, how egoic you are, how narcissistic you are, that's actually a way that you can break anger and, and, and lust and rage. That's the most uncomfortable feeling of all, right, is the narcissism, the pride, the ego. That one, that one is very hard to allow yourself to feel. And the only thing that can dissolve that is courage. And very specifically, the courage to admit that you are powerless. That you are powerless over all of this. That you are not, to quote my favorite chapter in the Bible from the book of Job, when Job is just railing at God, like, why is everything, why is it so horrible? Why am I being so punished? Why is it so awful? Rage, rage, you know, the highest level of vibration. He goes from being a nice, quiet guy to being enraged. You know, it's like right close to divinity is rage, pride. Why me? Why are you doing this to me? And God gives the longest speech that's, that's in the Bible. And it's beautiful. And it's, it's, it's something that brings me an enormous amount of comfort, weirdly. It's just this slam down where God just says, who is this like disturbing the peace with words that have no knowledge? You know, what? And then just, just it's takedown, just says to Job, uh, were you there? on the day that I laid the foundations of the earth. Did you do that? Did you create this earth? Did you do that? Were you there? Answer, you know? And, and it's a one assaulting question after another. Were you there? Were you there when I separated the water from the land? Do you know how that worked? Do you know where the light came from? Did you do that? Did you make that? Have you ever commanded the dawn? My favorite line in the entire Bible. Have you ever, anyone? Have you ever commanded the dawn? Did you do that? Have you ever been able to stop the sun from rising or make it rise? Have the gates of death ever been open unto you? Do you know what the mysteries of death are? Do you know what's on the other side? Do you have that information, anyone? Have you ever, and it's just one question after, the, who feeds the wild raven? Do you do that? You know, does the lightning answer to you? That's a great one. Does the lightning answer to you, Job? So that it comes to your side and says, here I am, where do you want me to go? No, you have no power over fucking any of this. You have no power over any of this. And it's so weird to realize that the opposite of depression is an acceptance of your powerlessness. Because depression can feel like it's so powerlessness, but actually you're what you're doing is you're still in resistance, right? And that surrender into your powerlessness is the threshold of peace. But you have to go through the entire ladder of all the stuff. So if you're stuck in this low vibration, I would encourage you with safe help, if you can get it, to start to feel sadness, start to feel fear, start to feel rage and lust, start to feel pride and ego, and then finally start to feel the incredible courage to just be like, I have never commanded the dawn. I literally have no idea what the fuck is happening here. There's not only no ground under my feet, there's like no earth under the ground and then that's all spit, like, no, like there's no safety. There's no safety, I'm out of control. And you get that to that place and then there's this incredible relaxation that comes over you. Um, I love, Aunt, the, the writer Annie Lamont talks about when her son was little and he had a little car seat, she put a wheel, a steering wheel on his car seat so he could be in the back seat feeling like he was driving and then she had to get rid of it because it caused him so much anxiety because he thought he was driving and he didn't know how. So he was like, he was this little three-year-old with white knuckles like, I don't know how to get, he was doing this and she said she feels like that's what all of us are like, you know, and so 
When you get to the point where you have the courage to admit your powerlessness, it's when you let go of the fake wheel that was never yours anyway, right? And that, strangely, is actually the opposite of depression. You don't think so, because what you keep thinking is that you can control your way out of depression. Um, you can't. You have to surrender your way out of it. So, so that would be my advice, is to start feeling. <laughs> okay. I'm going to very reluctantly ha hand over to, to you lot for questions. You've got about 15 minutes, so if you... Yes, we'll take you for... Um, so, self-compassion, often people say it's got to be um, your being your own best friend. I just wondered, you mentioned your female friends. What advice or what have you learned from your best female friends about compassion? Oh... Um, I just wrote about this today on Instagram. Um, my dear friend Cheryl, whose oh, yeah. birthday it is today. Uh, so she, 19 years ago when I was going through my divorce and my very serious depression, um, very serious, like three to four year long depression where I really actually thought like, oh, this is what I'm actually like now. This isn't just a bad phase I'm going through. Um, and I met her and she invited me to come to a meditation night and I couldn't do it. I, 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 I couldn't sit alone with my, I was in such shame and I was in such terror um, that I couldn't sit for a half an hour in silence. Um, and I had to get up off my cushion and go into the hallway and just lose it. And, and, and I was just in there weeping. And I didn't know her very well. And I, I, my marriage was falling apart and I didn't know what to do. I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to stay. I, I, I felt so, I was supposed to be having, I promised my husband we would start having kids when I was 30. I couldn't, I, you already, pray love, why am I, t you know. Um, but I was at the beginning of that. And, um, and she came and sat next to me, and I was doing that heaving double pump sobbing, um, like <gasps> that kind, you know. Um, I've done it this week, I still do it, it's like a thing I do. Um, but she came and she sat with me, and all I could keep saying was, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, because I didn't. And she just took my face in her hands, and she said, this beautiful calm smile, tell the truth, tell the truth, tell the truth. That's it. And that has continued to be, so I learned that from her. That was kind of the first time I heard that idea because I grew up like many of us in a family where um, I had an ethics professor in, in college who said, he was this great guy with this Bronx accent and he said, my mother demanded the truth but she couldn't deal with it. Like this is <laughs> how most of us were raised where the truth was like demanded but nobody could deal with it. So it's like, be honest but don't let us actually know the truth. And, um, and so, that's where a lot of our splits come from in ourselves. And, and so telling the truth was how I, I got through that. And Rhea, who was a great truth teller, who had gotten sober and stayed sober for 19 years by being a truth teller, because that's the only way to be sober. Um, and she had this great adage that I absolutely loved, which was, um, the truth has legs. It's the only thing in the room that will always end up standing. So everything else can fall apart. All the relationships can fall apart. All the dramas can blow up. Everything can turn to dust. At the end of the day, at the end of the whole drama, the truth will be the only thing that is left standing in the room. And as Rhea used to say, since it's where we're going to end up, why don't we just fucking start there? <laughs> and that's what she would do. Is like, that's, and that's, I've learned it. And I learned it from her. And I can honestly say that that's what I do now in every dilemma is I think, let's just start there. Let's just start with the truth and since it's where we're going anyway. And it's made, it hasn't necessarily taken away suffering, disappointment, pain, heartache, but it certainly has taken away a lot of drama. 
Hi. Um, firstly, I just want to say thank you for Eat, Pray, Love, because it was my introduction to my spiritual journey. Oh, yay. Um, the question that I have is I've decided a few, about eight years ago that I don't want children. I don't think it's for me, and everyone around me wants to convince me otherwise. And I respect people who do decide to have children, um, but it's just not for me. But sometimes I do get the fear about, you know, when I'm older and then I'm going to be alone because I don't have kids when everybody else, you know, might pass. And I just wonder, how do you deal with that decision and what advice do you have for women who might make the make the? I have such a gift for you. I have statistics. Yes. Would you like them? Yeah. <laughs> I have statistics. Um, first of all, you're going to live longer. <laughs> you are. Um, women without children live longer than women with children. Um, you're going to be wealthier. You're going to be less liable to commit suicide. You're going to be less liable to become an addict. Um, you're going to be less liable to, um, you'll, let, you'll weigh less. It's so weird. It's like every single, you'll, you'll be healthier. You'll have less heart disease, less depression, less anxiety. So that's okay. First of all, you don't, and for everyone who has kids, it doesn't mean you're doomed. Um, <laughs> You know, my, I think that actually you, what, what women do when they want to and when they, when they feel that desire, I almost think it's not a choice. Like, that's how I felt for, like for me is it, it, that ultimately it was like, I know what it feels like. God, do I know what it feels like to want something. Um, I really, it's not like I walk around not knowing what longing feels like. Um, I just never had that longing, you know, so I've just been obedient to my longings um, and rather than to what, what other people have, have told me to do. So first of all, like, you've got a great future ahead of you. But secondly, this whole kind of, this is how they get you. Like, because they'll be like, oh, it's all well and good now. You'll die alone and your cats will eat you. Um, <laughs> so there have been some very fascinating studies that have been done in American nursing homes of elderly women to determine whether or not it is true that women who don't have children or family are unhappier in old age than women who do. And this is what they have determined. It is a non-starter in terms of a um, measuring, they can't find any statistical correlation between happiness and old age, of, of, of happiness and health and old age of um, elderly women and whether or not they have children. Here are the things that actually determine whether you will be happy when you are an elderly lady. And it is your health, so what they worry about, what old, makes old ladies unhappy is their poor health and financial insecurity. So floss your teeth, wear your seatbelt, save your money, and you'll have a fucking great old life. You'll be absolutely fine. <laughs> yeah. Hello. This Hi. is a much easier way of doing it, just popping up. Yeah. Hello. Hi, Liz. I'm Lara. Such a joy to see you again. It's a joy um, to I see you. I saw you last year as well. My question is around something that you said on the Sherry and Nancy podcast. Uh, which I've heard other people say, which is that you can't truly love another person until you really love yourself. And it's something that I've struggled with because I am incredibly kind and generous and giving to my friends and everybody, but I'm awful to myself, like, without even realizing it. And so I feel like I can give a lot of love, oh. even though I'm not giving a lot of love of my, to myself. So yeah. how does that sentence fit together? And if I'm wrong... And, right. and it's just that, you know, we are all on the whole of life is a journey towards loving ourselves unconditionally. Right. And that's why when we're in relationships with other people, you know, they might fail or they might not be good or they, we might have problems. It's because all of us, um, some further along than others, 
are at the point where we don't love ourselves, give ourselves the love that we really need. I'm kind of wishing I hadn't said that. <laughs> Honestly, no, I'm you're, thinking... You're not the only person that said it. I no, I know, I know. It's like a trope. It's a thing. And yeah. actually, as, as you're saying it, I'm like, is that true? Like, where, and, and what did I mean when I said that? And I think I, I, I don't know that it's true because I think that a lot of people I know who are very... Some of my very dearest friends are absolutely... They, they, they actually have terrorists who live inside their minds who are so evil to them. And they're so good and kind. To and the worst thing is now, no. Yeah, it's funny. Um, no. So they do absolutely have the capacity to love and to have really generative and beautiful relationships. Um, so I think that maybe that is simply not true. Um, and, and maybe even it's cruel to say it because it just gives you another thing to think you're doing wrong. Um, and that's not nice. <laughs> and I don't like to ever, ever kind of. I don't ever like to add to the pile of things, especially things that women think they're doing wrong. Um, so I'm kind of glad you brought it up, and I think maybe I won't say that anymore. I think for me, I think, um, you know, I, I, I do think in my own case that, you know, self-love is a very, very high, lofty aspiration. And, and, and I kind of don't even use the word self-love because I think it's a bit degraded and... and, and meme-like, and I'm not sure any of us really even know what it means, and um, I, I would settle for just the friendliness is the word that I use, a sort of, a sort of essential, like, a, a sort of essential friendliness from self to self. Um, I think that that's a good place to start. Self-love just seems like it could be out of reach for a lot of us. And, and when that doesn't work, the word that I use that really will often restore me back to sanity and back to dropping the knife that I hold to my throat is um, stewardship. So that, the way that I see that, especially because women are stewards of so many precious things, like women, of, the women have always been the stewards of the vulnerable, beautiful, precious, fragile things in the world, right? So, so the way I have come to see it is that, I, again, I don't know what is literally going on in the universe, but it does appear that I was given this one to take care of. I don't know why, but apparently, they thought that I could. <laughs> like, they're like, we're going we're gonna to entrust you with this one. And I sort of like to think they wouldn't have given it to me if they didn't think that I could take pretty nice care of it, you know, um, or protect it as much as possible. And so the sense is the stewardship of your own being, right? That for some reason, they gave me this one. They gave me this body. They gave me this mind. They gave me these talents. They gave me these traumas and these anxieties. And then I think that the, I think the assignment is can you take care of it? You know, would you be kind to it? We're giving it to you, we're putting it in your hands, would you be kind to it? Um, as you would be kind to any fragile living thing. And, and that sense of, of my sense of my own stewardship over myself has gotten me out of some very bad situations in my life that I might have stayed in longer, that were not places where this being was thriving, right? So I believe that part of stewardship is to put this being into environments where it can thrive. And thriving to me means being able to sleep well, um, being able to eat well, being not sort of bereft, not, not burdened, not really heavy with anxiety, being, you know, like just being in a good, good situation for it, like a good environment for it. And what I've discovered over the years is that I can actually weirdly trust at this point that when I put it into a circumstance that's not good for it, it will collapse. And that's my dear friend life guiding me that this isn't actually where it's supposed to be. 
um, because when I find myself back in a doctor's office asking for antidepressants again, um, I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, where am I in my environment that this isn't, this thing's not thriving? It's not thriving, it can't sleep, it can't, it can't eat, it, it's crying all the time, it's like this, this thing that I was given to take care of isn't doing very well. Um, what are we gonna have to change to take care of it? So that, I think, is, is how I see self-love, um, is just of, of a reverence for, for, the, for life, which I think women are good at. Women are really good at reverence for life. We take care of vulnerable, beautiful, special things. Um, we just forgot that we're one, um, and that we're actually the one that if like whatever, there's other ones that you may take care of for short periods of time or longer periods of time, but they come and go, even your own kids um, will eventually go. And then who's the one that you're constantly in stewardship over? It's gotta, you know, it's gotta be you. So, so I take back what I said, and, um, and I, I think it was kind of a mean thing to say, and I'll, I'll contemplate that more. Um, but I do still think that it's worthy to cultivate an essential posture toward yourself, a friendly, friendly stewardship, let's just call it that. And then we can maybe aim for love, but, um, but I think essential friendly stewardship, not treating yourself like you're a mugger would be nice, you know? Um, so yeah, <laughs> thanks. Thanks, honey, yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'm sorry, I know that there are so, so many more questions, but my little clock is just, showing the noughts but thank you all so very much for coming and Elizabeth Thanks, Gilbert thank guys. you so thank so you. so much <laughs> thank you thank you up there this week's episode of the how to academy podcast featured Elizabeth Gilbert and Hannah McInnes Liz's new novel, City of Girls, is out now from all good bookshops. You'll find plenty more talks featuring the most exciting and original authors and thinkers around on our YouTube channel, or by subscribing to this podcast. And if you're in the UK, you can visit us in London and see us live. Sign up at howtoacademy.com to hear more about talks from Al Gore, Patti Smith, and other superstars joining us this autumn. Thanks for listening.